welcome back, beloved. Uh, today I'm hoping to do a short video titled Overcoming the Accuser of the Brethren. Overcoming the Accuser of the Brethren. And it's really going to be a gospel presentation. We're going to focus a lot on the atonement and, and what Christ has accomplished for us. Um, in an effort, the whole goal of this video, if you're watching and you can see this picture, um, I know myself and I imagine many, many other children of God go through seasons of life where we, our heart condemns us. Uh, I go through this very often where I get anxiety and depression uh, related to my heart and my conscience uh, condemning me. And I know that's mostly my flesh, but it is also the devil and his demonic realm and false ideologies and false, you know, false thoughts creeping in and just going to the word of God and, and sort of unpacking these two verses. We're really going to be unpacking Revelation chapter 12 verses 10 and 11. Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. So the whole goal of this video is to just get a firmer understanding of Revelation chapter 12 verses 10 and 11 with the goal that it will re-explain the gospel to you and free up your conscience, right? The joy of the Lord is our strength. The book of Galatians chapter 5 says, stand fast. Uh, you know, it's for liberty that Christ has set us free. We're not under bondage to the law. We're not under bondage to sin. And much of my Christian walk is just remembering the gospel and looking at it through new angles of scripture. Uh, the gospel is like a great diamond, right? Every cut of, of scripture, right, points us to like a new, uh, you know, facet of that diamond. So we don't want to change the gospel by any means, but different scriptures speak to us in a different light. And I just, I, I think this one is very important when it comes to when your heart condemns you. Uh, Revelation 12 starts with, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ, the authority of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, have come for, this is when the devil is thrown out during the tribulation. And, and here's his title, The Accuser. I've highlighted a couple very important words. The accuser of our brethren. I highlighted brethren because the devil is not the accuser of the children of the devil. The devil is the accuser of the redeemed, the accuser of the children of God. He's been thrown down, he who accuses them before our God day and night. The devil literally has a place by the sovereign authority of God to speak with God and, and accuse the children of God before God day and night. That is to say, he is relentlessly, maliciously accusing the children of God day and night. And so first, I want to break down how he accuses. You know, the Bible says we're not ignorant of the devil's schemes. And so in scripture, it is revealed to us how this accuser accuses us. And he does it in several different ways. And so very quickly, I always find myself going back to Genesis chapter three in my lessons. Uh, you know, much of the gospel is within the first three chapters of the Bible. However, we're going to start with Genesis chapter three, verse one. The serpent, you're going to see here, 
He accuses God before man, and he accuses man before God. He, he is multifaceted in his accusations. So just to repeat that, he accuses God before man. He basically tries to convict God of sin. And you might say, like, I've never really seen that happen, but you actually have. When an atheist or somebody speaking against Scripture tries to use their own human reasoning to consider the God of the Bible as evil— or unjust, that's just the devil speaking through one of his mouthpieces trying to accuse God before you. And you're going to see it happened in the garden. And then obviously he also accuses us before God, which we'll get to in a second. So Genesis chapter 3, the devil, the serpent comes before Eve and he says, indeed, as God said, you will not eat of any tree of the garden, right? He's, he's asking this question. Of course, he's being dramatic because God only said that we could not eat from one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so we all know the story. He begins to deceive Eve. But take note, this is very important. This is how he deceives Eve. It's by accusing God of being unjust. He says, no, no, God knows that you won't die in the day you eat of that fruit. Yeah, God gave you that law, but God knows that. He already knows that if you actually eat of that fruit, you won't die. Your eyes will be open. You'll be wise. You'll be like God. The very same rebellion the devil started by trying to exalt himself above God, he, he's brought along humanity with him now. We've entered into that rebellion. He says, you'll be like God. You'll know good, uh, you know, know the difference between good and evil. So what he's essentially saying here is God is withholding something good from you. Look at this authoritarian, malicious, like God knows deep down, God is lying to you. God knows deep down that when you eat this, this fruit, you're going to be better. So he's accusing God to Eve, and in doing that, he deceives her. Now we also see, which Revelation 12 is talking about more specifically, how God, how the devil accuses mankind before God. And when we compare these two, I think it's very illuminating. I think there's much wisdom that we can learn here. The book of Job, you know, Satan comes with the angels before God. And at several different points in Job chapter 1 and 2, the Lord says to Satan, have, have you considered my servant Job? He's righteous. There's no one like him on the earth. He's a blameless and upright man. He fears God and he turns away from evil. And so, you know, this is quite incredible. The Lord is commending this man. This is a saint. This is a child of God. This is, you know, someone who fears God and turns away from evil. And look at what Satan does. He accuses him. He says, does Job fear God for nothing? Haven't you made a hedge about him and in and, and his house and all that he's done? You've blessed the work of his hands. You've made him rich, right? His possessions have increased in the land. Put, put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. And so I want you to understand the deception here and what he's doing. I wrote out this statement. Satan deceived Eve by claiming God was withholding something good from her, right? When in reality, God had just given Adam and Eve uh, the entire Garden of Eden, everything good. And he gave them one law just to test their fidelity. That was it. Um, but then he accuses Job before God, and it's a, an exact reverse opposite. He claim, claiming that God is being too good to Job. So he tells Eve, God isn't being good enough to you. Then he tells God, oh, you know, Job, essentially that you're being too good to Job. And Job is only worshiping you basically as a divine genie. This is so evil to say before God. Now, we know God knows all things. 
But the devil doesn't know all things. God knows Job is a righteous man, that he's a redeemed man. Job knew there was a prophecy Job uttered that he would see his redeemer in the flesh. Job was redeemed by the blood of the lamb. God knew that. But the devil didn't know that, so he accuses Job before God and basically is saying, nobody would worship you, God, just for your goodness, just for your grace, just for your justice, just for how loving you are. You're just a divine genie. You give Job, you know, everything he has, and that's why Job is worshiping you. So you see the deception and the accusations here. He tells Eve, God is not being good to you, and he deceives her by accusing God. Then he tells God that Job doesn't really love him and worship him, that Job, you know, is only worshiping God because he's been blessed. And so he accuses Job of unfaithfulness before God. Another great example, and I I pray and I hope, and if it is the Lord's will, I'd love to do a full teaching on this chapter and maybe a full teaching on the book of Zechariah one day, but we're going to move through this quickly here today. Zechariah chapter 3, Zechariah is having a prophecy and he sees Joshua, the high priest. Now we know Christ is our high priest now, but Joshua is representing the children of Israel, the true spiritual children of Israel in the nation of Israel at that time. And he's standing before the angel of the Lord, which I believe is a pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. And Satan is standing at his right hand to accuse him. Joshua represents the redeemed, the children of Israel, right? Satan is standing there to accuse him. And the Lord says to Satan, you see, you see the Lord's intercessory work before God. You know, Jesus is our mediator between God and man. He intercedes for us. And so Satan stands to accuse the children of God. And the Lord says to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord, this is very key, who has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Very important that we understand that. Satan is the father of lies. He hates God's justice, that God will punish sin and that God will punish sinners. But he also, at the same time, hates that God sovereignly bestows grace and forgiveness and mercy and is willing to give it to anyone who will come to Jesus. And so Satan is accusing them. And the Lord, I believe Jesus is saying, this is a a brand that I I chose and I plucked from the fire. You, You cannot accuse them. It says Joshua was clothed with filthy garments, just like the prophet Isaiah said. That's our righteous works and our sin. It's even our righteous deeds that we do in our own power. Even even our good deeds are filthy rags. Self-righteousness, our righteousness is filthy before God. We are fallen creatures. And so he's standing before the angel and he said to him, uh, you know, the, the angel of the Lord says to him, remove those filthy garments from him. See, I have taken your iniquity away. You see, Joshua, the children of God, and us, we have iniquity. God takes it away. How does he do that? I'm going to explain it in a minute. I've taken your iniquity away, and look, I'm going to clothe you with festal robes, pure robes. I'm going to give you new. So that filthy clothing represents sin. It represents those fig leaves from the Garden of Eden that we try and cover up our sin. These new robes represent the righteousness of Christ. You're going to see that. So in this vision, it says, put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and they clothed him with garments while the angel of the Lord, I believe Jesus, was standing by. And Jesus told parables about people who would get new clothing and righteous robes. And here's what I want to explain. 
Revelation 12, 11 now, we're, we're not even going to go completely through this verse. We're just stopping at the first sentence. So the devil is the accuser. He's the accuser of the brethren, the children of God. And then it says how they overcame him. We're going to stop right here and really dig into this. They overcame him. They overcame the devil because of the blood of the lamb. You see, in the Old Testament, it was a little bit murky. Like, how, how is God going to do this? How is he going to pluck us from the fire? Why did he choose us? How is he going to clothe us with his righteousness, his salvation? How is, it, how is he going to, what are these new robes? In the Old Testament, it's a little bit mysterious in a sense. It's not fully revealed. The book of Revelation and scripture reveals it, that the saints overcome the devil and overcome these accusations by the blood of the lamb. Revelation 7, uh, you know, there's a great uh, amount of people, you know, possibly millions or billions clothed in white robes. And it's uh, written of them that they're the ones that came out of the great tribulation and they've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. You see, it's all about the lamb. It's not the law. You can't answer the devil's accusations by going to the law and saying, well, I, you know, yeah, I lied then, but you know, I, I'm not lying anymore. Or I don't, I'm not that bad. Or I, I take care of the, I know I'm selfish, but I, I take care of the poor a little bit. No, no, no. You can't answer the accusations like that. It's the lamb. That's why when John sees Jesus, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the prophesied Lamb that all those temporary sacrifices pointed to. This is the Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. You know, he was led as a lamb to the slaughter. This is the prophesied Lamb of God, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. He is our confidence. Hebrews 10 says, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Not by our good works, not by anything. The blood of Jesus, it's the payment. It's the gospel, guys. It's that he paid the penalty for our sins. God has taken our iniquity away. And you have to understand, it's a mystery in the Old Testament. How does he do that? Why does he choose Israel? And in the New Testament, why did he choose me? It's not based on my goodness. It's based on his grace and based on his mercy. I'm going to get to the crux of this teaching. Really, the most important part of this teaching is in a few minutes. But before I do that, I just want to bring up here, uh, I listened to a, an audio commentary on the book of Galatians by Martin Luther recently, and I've, I've recommended it several times. As with all things, test everything, hold fast what's good. But I found this commentary on Galatians by Martin Luther extremely edifying. And it was during a time that my conscience was viciously accusing me, and it was a real trial. And this commentary was great food for my soul and constantly pointed me to the fact that justification is a gift by the grace of God based on what Christ has done. However, very important, I'm going to preach to you a little bit here. It's going to be my own personal preaching, so bear with me. Then we're going to get right back into Scripture, okay? There was a, a sentence Martin Luther said in this commentary, and when I heard it, at first I got very upset. You know, I almost shut it off. Like, I was annoyed. It says, the gospel is weak in me. And at first, I really was annoyed. I'm like, what is this blasphemy? The gospel is weak? How dare you call the gospel weak? And that's because in the audio, it was like, the gospel is weak, and then it paused, right? <laughs> and then he said, in me. And as he explained that to me, and as I sought that in Scripture, you know, 1 John says, if our heart condemns us, 
God is greater than our heart and knows all things. And so it's very important to understand this is a true statement. The gospel is weak in me. And, and I consider myself a preacher of the gospel. I love to evangelize and do that. And yet still the gospel is weak in me. And here's why. I'm a fallen creature. My emotions are sinful, and we often go and trust our emotions, and then we're like a ship in the sea being tossed to and fro. You see, there are several situations where the accuser comes against us. The first one, and remember, this is a war that we have to arm ourselves, and we have to prepare ourselves with the gospel of peace and the word of God and his righteousness, right? But I, we cannot trust in our emotions, because here's what happens. I want to describe to you two battles. There are times the accuser comes against you and he might send other human beings against you and you really haven't done anything wrong. And those times are difficult. You're being accused of something you didn't do or he's accusing you of something silly. And those times are difficult and, and the gospel can seem weak in you. Your heart might start to condemn yourself, but typically you'll go back to the word. You'll shake it off. The Lord will lead you through it. But then, this is really difficult, these are, these are massive battles here, okay? Then, there are times you actually do fall into sin. And so your conscience will witness against you that you've fallen into sin. Your flesh will condemn you. The accuser will accuse you. And then, this is the most brutal part, the Holy Spirit will convict you of sin. And this crushes me because it would seem, I mean, it almost seems like the battle is lost, like the war is over. At this point, when I sin, and I do sin, and so do you, when we sin, the gospel is very weak in us. And let me explain. It would seem as if the battle's lost. It would seem as if for a moment, the Holy Spirit that convicts me of sin, the Holy Spirit who is God convicts me of sin because I have sinned, but it would seem as if him and the devil agree because the devil accuses me of that sin. And in a, in a singular sense, the Holy Spirit and the devil do agree. I have sinned. And so it's, it's almost like I despair and I get depressed and anxious. There's no way I'm a Christian. Like, what have I done? But beloved, just let me preach to you. The Holy Spirit and the devil, they might agree on the law of God. And, and, and to our practice of life, they, the devil might use your sin to come against you and accuse you. And if it's really sin, that's true. But here's the difference. The devil only accuses the children of God. He would have his children never think about sin. He wants to appease their conscience. He wants them to continue in sin. He wants them to love sin. He wants them to be lifted up in pride like a gay pride parade and celebrate their sin. But to the children of God, this is what he wants to do. He wants to take the law and sin and say, how on earth could you be a child of God? You've just sinned. He will twist and pervert scripture so that every time you sin, you will just assume there's no way on earth you could be a child of God. Whereas the Holy Spirit uses the law as a tutor to bring you to Christ. Those who are of the Spirit are not under the law. Those who are led by the Spirit are not under the law. And so the Holy Spirit is pointing you toward Christ for righteousness. And the devil is accusing you and pointing you in one of two ways. He's pointing you to the law for righteousness so that you try and justify yourself, or self-righteousness, or he's pointing you towards, yeah, you're not a Christian. What were you thinking? Just go enjoy a life of sin. Stop trying. So he's pointing you towards one of those two things. And the Holy Spirit is pointing you toward Jesus. That is the difference. And that's where you need to just strengthen yourself. And you need to understand that the gospel is weak 
in us because God's glory is shown in our weakness. And so I can't just examine myself uh, all day, and, and that's not going to bring me you know, the great assurance I'm looking for. It is a command that we must examine ourselves and we must test ourselves, but it's to see if we are in the faith. And so where do we go for that blessed assurance? Beloved, we go to the rock of the word of God, to scripture. And I want to, this is the most important part of the teaching. In Revelation, there is an angel flying in heaven and he's preaching the gospel. And it is there called the eternal gospel. Okay, very important. Psalm 119, speaking of the word of God. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled, fixed in heaven. It's not weak, okay? Matthew 24, Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away. My words will not pass away. Our faith has to be fixed on Jesus and fixed on the promises of God. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. It says, we've been born, of, born again, not of the flesh, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring Word of God. So listen to the eternal gospel. Listen to the word and listen to our Lord Jesus right now with your heart. This is how you strengthen it. The, the word of God, we have to feast on the gospel every day. Jesus said in John chapter 6, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Do you not understand this? Jesus loses none of his sheep. All that the Father gives to him come to him. And the one comes to him that comes to him, he never casts them out. He then says again, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me. This is the will of God. Our God is sovereign. Our God sits in the heavens. He does whatever he wants. That of all that he has given me, I lose nothing. Jesus loses nothing of what God has given him, but raise it up on the last day. You see, the gospel is eternal. It's the eternal gospel, the eternal good news. God has a group of people that he is taking from eternity past to eternity future in heaven. There is a real moment in time that God sent his son and he really actually died on the cross. And that was for our sins. And there is a real moment in time that God sends the Holy Spirit and it illumines my heart and it, it, it opens me up to the reality of what Christ has done for me on the cross. And oh yes, there is blessed, blessed assurance. And there are great emotions that come with that Holy Spirit. And I get assurance and I get the joy of the Lord. And that is fantastic. But my confidence has to be fixed on the word of God because my emotions go back and forth. And so this is the Lord of the universe speaking the word and will of God and promising that all that the Father gives to him come to him. And none of those are cast out. And he loses none, and he raises them up on the last day. He says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. Don't you understand, when we fall into sin, I'm not talking about the ungodly who want their consciences a peace so that they can live in that forever. When we fall into sin, we're sinning against our Father. We're not sinning against just our, our lawgiver. This is the will of the Father, that everyone who beholds the Son. Beloved, remember the serpent in the wilderness? The snakes, the sin is biting at our feet and killing us. We don't shake it off by just 
stomping on the head of a snake or just what, what do they do? They look up to the bronze serpent just as Jesus was lifted up to the cross. So all scripture agrees. I'm not saying you don't have to examine yourself and I'm not saying you don't have to test yourself and I'm not saying you don't have to guard your heart and keep very close watch on your behavior. This is what I'm saying you have to do. You have to behold the sun if you want the true freedom. For every one time you examine yourself, make sure you are looking at Jesus and re the gospel to yourself 10 times, 50 times, 100 times, which you can do throughout the day. Behold the Son and believes in him. We'll have eternal life and Jesus will raise us up on the last day. This sets my heart at ease, not just my feelings, not, not just examining myself, the word of God, the promises of Christ. Look at another one, John chapter 10. My sheep hear my voice. The devil accuses the sheep. The devil does not accuse the goats, but Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. He's talking to the Pharisees before he's talking to the goats. He says, you don't believe you're not my sheep. My sheep hear and my sheep believe and they follow me and I give eternal life to them. Not that he gives us temporary life until we lose it. Not that he will cast us out. He gives as a gift eternal life to us. And they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. He doesn't cast any out. None are snatched from his hand. My Father who has given them to me. The Father gave the children to the Son. The Father gave the saints to the Son. Very important. He's greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hands. I and the Father are one. Jesus is God. So we were given to Jesus. Remember, this is the eternal gospel based on the blood of the Lamb. When were we given to Jesus? Ephesians chapter 1. God chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. That is amazing. I'm going to break down this statement. Before the foundation of the world, we were chosen in Christ to be holy and blameless. Even though we would fall horribly into sin, we were chosen to be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as sons. You see, Revelation 20, verse that's eternity past. Let's look at eternity future. It, it, Revelation 20 talks about the book of life. It says, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he is thrown into the lake of fire. That's eternity future for the ungodly. But look at this. In Revelation 13, it says the book of life is the book of life of the lamb slain. It's the book of life, the foundation of the world. Your name must be written in the book of life from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who has been slain. This is what I'm trying to explain to you. If you want to free up your conscience, if you want to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, you've got to dig into scripture and dig into the, God, the doctrines and teachings about grace and what God has accomplished for us. God is outside of time. He does things within time, but he is outside of time. And this is an eternal good news. Romans chapter 8 says, who will bring a charge? Who will accuse God's elect, his chosen children. God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died and was raised. He is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us, just like before the high priest in Zechariah 3 and Joshua. 
And so you might be asking yourself, okay, it's an eternal gospel. God chose them before the foundation of the world. God wrote them in the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Uh, And if they're not written in that book, they're out of luck. Well, how do I know if I'm in that book? Look, this is how you overcome the accuser. Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory. This is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Our faith. Do you have faith in Jesus? Rejoice. You're born again. You're saved. It says, by grace, you've been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And so this is how we strengthen our hearts. It's it's based on the blood of the Lamb. The gospel does not reveal our righteousness. We cannot boast before God. We've done nothing to earn it. It's the eternal gospel. It reveals the righteousness of God and his grace and in his mercy. God looked and he saw a group of people that he chose. And and that group of people is from one lump of clay. We have all fallen into sin. We have all become haters of God. And God chose a group of people to display his love and mercy and grace in. And he sent his son to die for those people. And in real time, he died and, was, and rose again for their justification. And in real time, God sent the Holy Spirit and, and he caused them to be born again. And in real time, they, they went from death to life and they were saved through faith. That is to say, there was a moment in time where they didn't have faith and then a moment in time where they did have faith. But all of that was predestined in eternity past. And it does not be- depend on man who wills or runs But on God, who has mercy, that faith we have is a gift of God, and you can glory in it, and you can rejoice in it, and you can even exercise that faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And also, if you do not have that faith, if you merely have a mental knowledge of God, you need to understand the gravity of this. You need to understand if you don't have real faith in Jesus, if you've not been born again, if you've not been washed from your sins, there's nothing you can do. You are undone. All, all you must do is realize that you are a dead man and, and repent and turn towards Christ and ask him for faith. If you don't have faith, don't lie to yourself. Go to God and ask for mercy because you should have faith. If you don't have faith, it's because you suppress the truth in unrighteousness and you are guilty before God. Everyone on the way to the lake of fire is guilty justly before God. So don't appeal to God based on the law. Don't try and justify yourself or disagree with yourself or the devil's accusations about your sin with the law. Agree with the Holy Spirit that you've sinned, but go towards the Lamb. Appeal to the grace and mercy of God Almighty. There is a promise from God that if you forsake your ways and your thoughts and turn to him, he will abundantly pardon you. He will get rid of those filthy rags and he will clothe you with the garments of salvation. And how can he do all of that based on the blood of the lamb? It's all about that. It's all about what Christ has done. I'll close with Revelation 5, 9. It says Christ the lamb is being worthy. It's another vision of Christ the Lamb being worshipped in heaven and saying that he is worthy because he was slain and he purchased for God with his blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation of the world. He's bringing people out. So our faith isn't just that God exists. Our faith is in what Christ has done, that his blood, his death, purchased life for us, that we owed God a debt because we broke his law. We incurred that debt. The wages of sin is death. 
And in order to purchase and redeem us back, Christ sacrificed himself for us. He, he purchased us for God with his blood. He bore the wrath of God so that we could enjoy the blessing of God. And so when the accuser comes against you and he uses your conscience, the flesh, the devil, demons, people, the law of God, and, and even if it seems like at times that the Holy Spirit might not be convicting you of sin, but might the Holy Spirit might be grieved from your sin, you've got to go back to the very foundations of your faith. And so that if the accuser says, you sinned, how on earth can you be a Christian? You can agree with him. You can say, you know what? I have sinned. Go to my Lord. He, he's rich and, and he has an abundance of riches and he purchased me. He will pay the price for that sin. I don't want to continue in that sin. I have no desire to do that. But that sin cannot send me to hell. I've been freed from the law because I believe in Jesus. And so that strengthens my heart and my conscience. Um, and that frees up my conscience so that I can serve the living God and not just sort of fall into a sense of despair or depression or anxiety over my sins. And I, I pray it does the same for you.